Welcome to Talkless Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. This is Todd Botler. I'm your host, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. Both of those publications are free, and you can sign up for Texas Plus Water by going to texasplusswater.org and the Texas Water Journal at texaswaterjournal.org. My guest today is Greg Ellis, a renowned Texas groundwater attorney, former general manager of the Edwards Opera Authority, and the first executive director of the Texas Alliance of Groundwater Districts. Um, and somebody I've known quite a while, actually, you know, professionally, going back to uh, the Edwards Opera litigation in the 90s. Greg, welcome and thank you for being part of Talk Plus Water. I appreciate the invitation. All right, so... You are one of the experts on groundwater in the state of Texas. And so before we get to those questions, tell me a little bit about how you first became involved with water. What was it that brought you into the water world, uh, you know, motivated you? Tell us about that. When I was going to uh, school at UT, working on my BBA, I knew that I wanted to be involved in and around politics. It's part of the reason why I came to the University of Texas to begin with. And I became an intern in the office of local state representative Terrell Smith. Oh, I remember him. The next session, he became the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, which is, in fact, the water committee for the House of Representatives. And I moved over to serve as the research clerk for that committee. I worked on a number of bills there. In fact, I was... Uh, pretty instrumental in drafting up the Barton Springs Edwards Aquifer Conservation District bill. And huh. my boss was instrumental in seeing to it that it wasn't supported by property taxes. We eventually worked out a deal where the city of Austin funds a certain portion of their budget every year. A decision the city of Austin may regret at this point, I'm not sure. <laughs> but it was a unique solution. And I, I've always kind of prided myself on helping to find those types of unique solutions to these problems. So I did a lot of research in water issues. I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew I wanted to go to law school, and I wanted to work on water issues and, and environmental issues generally. But working for House Natural Resources really got me interested in the water issues. And so after that, I went to UT Law School and graduated in December 1988. Uh, worked that next spring, spring of 89, in the Senate, I had to go find out what the Senate was for because I'd worked in the House my entire career by that point. <clears throat> and I worked there for a freshman Republican, Bill Ratliff. Okay. Now, that session, we managed to pass 95% of his legislative package. And I took complete credit for that as, <laughs> as his aide in getting all those bills passed. His his later tenure as Lieutenant Governor of Texas, it made it makes it pretty clear he probably had something to do with it as well. <laughs> uh, he was uh, an excellent legislator, uh, an excellent politician and working with people, and I learned a lot from him. And uh, from there, I went to work for the Texas Water Commission, which again kind of shows how old I am. That's two agencies ago. That was the, the successor to the Texas Department of Water Resources, which had been split up a few years earlier into Water Commission and the Texas Water Development Board. Water Commission being on the water rights side, development board, of course, being on the water development side and funding projects. I left that job to go work for 
the Harris-Gallison Coastal Subsidence District, now the Harris-Gallison Subsidence District, as their general counsel. And to show you what is meant by general counsel, my first day on the job, the general manager, Ron Neighbors, came in, sat down at my desk, and said, we have this cartoon character we use for a lot of our uh, publications and when we go out and do home shows and things. We call him Drip Drop the Water Dragon. He has a water conservation education. Can, can we copyright that? I said, what in the world would I know about copyright? Law? I have no <laughs> idea. So I learned very quickly that the general and general counsel is a serious general. It can take you anywhere. I was there for five years. Uh, in 1996, I got a call from Luana Buckner saying, we're looking for a temporary general manager for the Edwards Aquifer Authority in its first year. Rick Eller is not going to continue on. He's the, he's the holdover manager from the Edwards Underground Water District. He has no interest in, in that job. We need somebody who can be here at least long enough until we can find a permanent manager. And I said, well, Luann, I want you to understand if I come work there, I don't want to work there for six months and leave. I'm, I want to be considered at least for the permanent position. And she said, make that clear when you talk to him. I said, I'll make sure you get an interview and you do the rest. So I went in to do the interview. Uh, it was me and, and Marshall Jennings and Chuck Bailey. And 19, or I'm sorry, got the wrong number up there. 17 board members. And uh, the way that they did the interview is every one of them got one question, then they went around again, and they each got a second question. So uh, it's me and the seven, the, the 17 board members. They interviewed all three of the candidates at once. No. Individually, so okay. can, we each took turns. Okay, gotcha. And I, but you were in the I room with was, the other ones. I was. We were all in a in a separate room waiting. And okay, we were called okay. in one was, at a time. Gotcha. So I came in and I sat down. I opened up my briefcase. I took out a copy of Chapter Thirty Six. I took out a copy of the EAA Act. I took out a copy of the Bar Shop Decision. Yeah. And I took out a hundred and fifty count bottle of Excedrin medicine. <laughs> and I said, "Okay, I'm ready." <laughs> and I thought I did a pretty good job of the interview. Uh, Chairman Belden later told me that he thought I'd done one of the best jobs in an interview you'd ever seen. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it's a nice compliment. And they went into a closed session then to debate who they wanted to hire. And after about an hour to an hour and a half of debate, the story I heard later was that Belden said, half of you apparently want Marshall Jennings and the other half of you want Chuck Bailey. And the ones who want Chuck Bailey absolutely do not want Marshall Dennings. The ones who want Marshall absolutely do not want Chuck. So I haven't heard anybody say anything bad about Greg Ellis yet. So I got the job, and what I believe was that board's first unanimous vote they ever cast, because I was everybody's second choice. Oh, my gosh. That is a great story. I had no idea that you that was your background prior to that. I yep. mean, I knew that you had... You know, come over from Houston mm-hmm. uh, and was at the subsides district, but I didn't know that you'd worked at the legislature prior to that. Also, I had no idea how they had selected first general manager. Well, um, then they went on their search for a general manager, and okay. it kind of came down to, to me and the, I think it was a woman from New Mexico was their top two choices. And, and the board had a long conversation with uh, the, the, the three executive committee top three uh, officers of the board about what they liked about my previous tenure as the temporary person and 
what I should fix in the future. And they eventually offered me the position. Oh, so you had three years at it before. I had I had nine selection. months at that point when they hired me as the permanent general manager. Oh, okay. Nine months. And then, right. Huh. Okay. Uh, and uh, when I left there, I went into private law practice and have managed to carve out a niche so specialized, I have a potential of 100 clients worldwide. I only represent groundwater conservation districts and subsidence districts. So I only take that side. Yeah. It has kept me from having to worry about conflicts of interest, about conflicts on issues. Uh, but it has kind of limited what I can do. And as my wife occasionally points out, I'm not working for the money side of the argument. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, um, let's, you know, talk a little bit about, <clears throat> you know, that beginning there at the uh, Edwards Aquifer Authority. I was going to start off with the Alliance of Groundwater Districts. But, but let me start off with the, the authority. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember you came in and the EAA had to draft all these rules. And you had hearing after hearing, you know, trying to, you know, come up with the um, <coughs> agreed rules under which the Edwards Opera Authority was going to operate. And so what was that, I mean, process like? I mean, because it looked from an observer, somebody who was not at every meeting, but frequently sitting out in the audience watching it, it looked, looked pretty brutal. It, and it was. I mean, it was, it was tough. I think the night we adopted the first really comprehensive set of rules for the district, uh, we started that meeting at 6 p.m. in the San Antonio City of Council Chambers, and we ended a little after 2 a.m. with the, the final vote. Um, lots of amendments and uh it, it was it was tough. People people were very angry about what they perceived they were losing. Um, a lot of it was a huge area. It's all a part of eight different counties. Yeah. With the west being primarily irrigation, the east having vital concerns about continuing that spring flow. The center, of course, being San Antonio and and the you know very large city at what the seventh largest city in the country depending on this aqua for their water supply. And we had to find a way to try and treat everybody as equitably as we could. Now, the statute really laid out what we could do. <clears throat> and what we had to figure out is the process to get from where we were to where we were going. They had a cap of 472,000 acre feet max that we could issue in permits. We had double that, over 850,000 acre feet in applications. Right. We had a methodology by which we could cut back on permits, but we also had a guaranteed amount for irrigators. And so we came up with a process where we're going to cut people back and then restore people back up to the guaranteed minimum. Um, Eventually, we worked through that problem by raising the cap up to cover all of the permits that we had to were required to issue. I used to give speeches on a routine basis and would always mention that only the Texas legislature can create a system where the maximum was lower than the minimum, the sum of the minimums. Right. But that's where we were. And we also had a funding issue because we have, we were issuing uh, production or permit fees. And we had at least one legal opinion that said, you can't collect those fees until these permits are issued. Well, issuing the permits was not going to be an easy process. We were doing the same job <clears throat> that was done by the water master that handled the lower Colorado adjudication of surface water rights. About the same number of applicants, about the same amount of water. It took 
25 years to get through permitting the lower Colorado River. It took us three and a half years to get through the process of issuing the permits. And even then we had, we had to continue because we had contested matters after that. Um, I had one legislator who told me, I said, look, we've got to, we've got to give these people each a hearing. And he said that, um, um, sorry about that. He said, well, hold a hearing, have have each one come in, give his say. He says what he says at the end of the night, vote on the permits. No, I'm sorry. That's not, that's not how these hearings work. (laughs) These are adjudicatory hearings. They're like trials. There has to be evidence. There's a, a, Protestants and applicants, and it, and it runs just like a trial. And each one of these can be a trial. When we proposed the permits, we ended up with 600 contested cases. Hmm. Now, we worked through 90-plus percent of those with settlements. And I credit San Antonio Water System. I credit the, the applicants a lot with how much effort they put into finding compromise and finding those solutions and working out the differences and everybody getting most of what they wanted. But there were a few that took a long time. The Braggs, of course, being chief among us. Right. Because they were not, you know, they had, the Braggs had one well that qualified for permit, but less water than needed to have healthy pecan trees. Pecan farm, right, which is, you know, for our listeners don't know, pecans require a lot of water. That's right. And then they had a second pecan orchard, that did not have any historic use on their well and therefore didn't have any right to a permit at all. And, um, you know, I said at the time, I'm not sure if we'll ever have to pay them for their water rights, but we might have to pay them for their trees because there's, there's always a constitutional right, property right to be able to recover your investment back to expectations if regulations go so far as to jeopardize those investments. Well, we worked out a deal where Saws was going to transfer water rights to the Braggs in exchange for them dropping their permit. But we needed to, it was going to be base irrigation groundwater rights, but we needed to get the law changed to allow base irrigation groundwater rights to be transferred. That bill didn't pass. When the bill didn't pass, the, the, the solution fell apart and we're back in litigation mode. And uh, my biggest regret for my time at EAA is I wasn't able to solve the problem for the Braggs. And that ended up costing the authority four and a half million dollars in the final judgment, which is, is uh, tragic, but not catastrophic. Right. <clears throat> so there were some, there were some very tough meetings. Uh, the people I felt the worst for were the true farmers out there who were tenant farmers, didn't own any water rights and had their landlords selling 50% of the water that was available to them to saws or to somebody else and reducing their water, available water supply by half. That was rough. Yeah, bad. And of course, there's not a whole lot that can be done for them or, or uh, any way to assist it. We did come up with a plan that's in place today. It led to later litigation that resulted in a bill that passed and solved the issue that allowed for temporary transfers of the base irrigation groundwater rights, and that helped people get by. Um, <clears throat> but it was, it was obviously a very interesting time. Uh, the, the, I think the biggest problem that still exists, really, is that 
we followed the legislation exactly as the legislation said we had to do it. They told us exactly what we had available to permit. They told us exactly who qualified for those permits. And yet it was the ratepayers that ended up paying that $4.5 million instead of the legislature who created that problem. Yeah. That I thought was terribly unfair. Hmm. So just uh, kind of sticking here with the Edwards Aquifer, I mean, it's, it's a water market, right? Yes. <clears throat> Let's talk about that uh, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest in water markets now. And, you know, the Edwards is an example that I, I bring up quite a bit on my podcast. Uh, and, you know, people in the water world here in Texas, you know, they know about the Edwards. But talk a little bit about, you know, how that, uh, how the Edwards developed as a water market and, and why. Well, obviously that was done on purpose. They wanted that, those water rights to be marketable to an extent. They wanted a half of all the irrigation rights to remain as irrigation rights, and so they put a limitation on that, and to remain with the land, right? And and they had and it had to pass with the land, which caused another problem because what happens if the land's not being irrigated? Then you have an irrigation right that's absolutely useless. Um, I thought what they should have said is one half of the irrigation rights must remain as irrigation, but they can be marketed to other irrigators. I think that'd be very very useful. But passing with the land um, provision in the statute kept that from happening. So the passing with the land also meant, since you can't do a permanent transfer, all you can do is lease those base irrigation groundwater rights and allow farmers to move them around where they needed the water at any given time. And so that was a, a creative solution I think we came up with that's lasted to this day, although it did eventually require legislation to fix it. The, the rest of the market, which was for industrial, public utility, city use, uh, was created because there were, uh, the elements were all there. Number one, you had a finite amount that could be permitted, which creates demand. Now you have unmet demand. People can't drill wells. They can't get to the aquifer. So if they want water, they're going to have to buy water from somebody that has it. And then it's allocated and decided exactly who qualified for an allocation. So now you had the people who could sell it. Uh, and again, for the for the... the Irrigation rights, that was split in half with base irrigation groundwater that had to remain with the land, and then unrestricted, and that unrestricted became just as valuable as any industrial or other uh, city right. Because the law required us to reduce permits to stay below the cap, that further created demand. The, the city of San Antonio and all the other utilities, a lot of the industry were having to buy water rights almost immediately in order to get back to whole, in order to get back to what they've been pumping. Uh, had we just cut everybody back straight off, it would have cut every, all the permits by about 50%. It's kind of hard to go to a city and say, you need to operate on half the water that you've been operating on. So there was, there was a mechanism put in place, this market, that allowed them to transfer those water rights in from the irrigators. Of course, the city of San Antonio has looked for a number of alternative supplies. They're, they're probably world-famous uh, aquifer storage and recovery system. Uh, they've gone all the way up to the Post Oak Savannah District to buy water through the Vista Ridge Pipeline. Uh, they're, they're continually working on development. And, of course, again, world-class leaders, I think, in the efforts of water conservation. They were able to create a lot of supply, make what they have last right. a lot longer by conserving what they have. Right. I'm, I'm always amazed when I, I think back to 
you know, how much water was being used in San Antonio per capita and other parts of the state. Uh, and what we thought in the 90s was possible to get down to and what we've got down to now. I yep. mean, it's, I mean, if you told people, oh, yeah, major cities getting down to, you know, 120, 130, uh, you know, gallons per capita per day, they thought you were nuts right back then. I mean, I had, I had somebody tell me once, said something like, I was talking about, oh, you know, I wonder if the 120 or 110 per day is possible. And he said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's how much water people have in the Sahara Desert or something. I'm like, I had no idea whether, whether he was right or wrong. I don't think he was right, frankly. I think he was definitely wrong. But, but that was kind of the attitude about it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, well, you can't get down to levels like that because people won't be taking showers or doing water in the lawns or, or anything. But we see that, you know, that's not the case, right? Well, when you, when you provide people with adequate reason and you set up the mechanisms necessary to give them the means by which to achieve that conservation, such as toilet rebate programs and showerhead replacement programs and other means of, of, of conserving, they'll do it. Right. I mean, they, they just have to have the proper motivation and the proper education on what the means are. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that really all over the country. Uh, you know, our good friend, Carol Baker, who's been a nationwide leader on water conservation, can tell you that when you provide the proper education and the, and the means to achieve the goal, people will help you achieve that goal. Right, right. You know, when we start off, I didn't tell everybody that you and I are at the Hula Hut restaurant in mm-hmm. Austin, on, sitting on Lake Austin, really, we're looking at right now. And you've already referred to the Colorado River, talking about um, adjudication of water rights, mm-hmm. essentially below Austin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's where all the really large rice irrigation um, systems were. I guess, you know, there's still irrigation of rice going on down there. Um, but, you know, what I think, you know, has always been interesting to me is, you know, Austin is a city that's always prided itself on, you know, its, uh, you know, concern for the environment. And, you know, I've looked at how San Antonio has done in terms of its water use. And, you know, Austin's, Austin's playing catch up. I mean, for sure. And, uh, you know, being a homeowner here and kind of observing, you know, how much, uh, you know, water is still going towards, you know, lawns and all that. There's still a lot of people irrigating lawns in San Antonio, but um, there's a lot that could be done in Austin that hasn't happened yet. And I mean, I think it, you know, without going on here too long, I mean, San Antonio was, you know, facing situation related to, uh the Endangered Species Act and, and needing to regulate the Edwards. And, you know, Austin really hasn't had that kind of a, uh, you know, issue except for water quality issues related to the Bart Spring Salamander, which mm-hmm. has been a development issue, which is, of course, affected water. But, um, but still, you know, uh, Austin um, is doing better, but, you know, it's always interesting to me that San Antonio and El Paso. El Paso is a you know a, a great leader uh, of water conservation mm-hmm. in the state, and 
you know, I'm not sure too many people know that. Well, there has to be strong enough motivation, and it's kind of hard when you're sitting on Lake Austin and looking at all the water out there to convince people we have a water issue. Now, 2011, it was a lot easier when right. people saw how far down the water levels dropped. Uh, of course, there's that famous photo of a man standing on a two-by-six that crossed the entire Colorado River with a shotgun in his hand, protecting people from coming and stealing any water. Okay, so uh, that's 1950s drought. So let me <clears throat> let me tell you about that that photo. It's before that, and that photo is lost. I tried for months to track it down, mm-hmm. and it's uh, a photo of it looks like it looks like a guardsman, but he's actually he's actually a um, what was it? He was a uh, um, ROTC student. Okay. And uh, I know where the photo was last and what family owned the photo and where it came from, but, but they've lost track of it. And, but, you know, I wish I had a copy of it, you know, to, to put on Texas Water Journal, one of our other publications. But Was that from the 30s drought? Or was that- it was from the 30s, and okay. it was after this dam had broken. Right here. Oh, okay. Yeah. So and, down the first right. Time. And so, you know, essentially for those of us list those who are listening here, you know, the, the ROTC student is he's essentially striding the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's like four Trickle. feet wide or something yep. like that. And he's standing across it with a rifle. Mm-hmm. And that's like it's a great, you know, you know, I- ironic Texas water photo, which seems to be lost to uh, lost to time now. But um, well, if we're not careful about controlling our demand and ensuring that we have an adequate supply, we may see those kind of days again. Well, about that, um, you know, the Edwards has kind of led the way as a water market. Um, why do you think we don't have other, you know, water markets like the Edwards in, in Texas? I, I think the Edwards might be the last groundwater market we see set up like that. Now, there are some natural areas where if I want to buy water from you, I've got to go on your land to drill a well to get it. Yeah. And so those areas we'll see marketing of water rights. Pay and handle probably comes closest right now to, to, to where that's occurring. Um, the, the cities up there that have bought water rights from various landowners have to go out to that land to drill the wells. And so there's there's a, an easy limitation on where you, have, where you can pump, who has the supply, and who has it to sell. In other areas, uh, the Carstock refers or the Carrizo Wilcox or even the Gulf Coast, it's difficult to market water rights there because I don't need to come buy your water right. I can just buy a piece of property next to you and drill my own well. That's certainly true in the areas that don't have a groundwater conservation district. But even where there is a groundwater conservation district, the, the, the Day case, the Supreme Court case that established that there is a vested property right to groundwater prior to capture, as tells us we cannot tell a landowner they can't access the water beneath their property. So the, where the Edwards Aquifer said every, the only Edwards wells that will ever be drilled are the ones that have already been drilled, you can never drill another well unless you have a permit. You can only have a permit by buying one from someone who already has one. You know, that situation is not going to occur anyplace else in Texas again. And if it ever does, if they try and create another district to create that type of market by limiting who has a right to even drill a well, I promise you there'll be litigation over that immediately. 
and I, I can't tell you where it's going to go because you know courts courts can always change their minds. Uh, the Supreme Court told us that in the, the famous Cipriano case when they said we're upholding the rule of capture for now. <laughs> right. Uh, indicating if they wanted to, they could do away with the rule of capture and replace it with some other court-enforced allocation system. Uh, but what the court said in, in East in the 1904 case and in Cipriano in 1997 is we want the legislature to address this and we want more groundwater conservation districts. And since that decision came out, we've gone from 40-something to 100. Right. And 97% of all the groundwater produced in the state is now produced from within a groundwater conservation district. There are still areas that probably need districts, if not now, someday will need districts, to have potential water supplies. Um, but in order to market the water, the groundwater rights, you have to have a, a, a limit on how much can be pumped overall. And then you have to have some allocation method that says who gets to pump it. Yeah. And that has to be then marketable to somebody else who wants to pump it. So uh, I just, I, I don't see it happening like the EAA anyplace else. Now, there are lots of places where people have gone out and leased water based on the hydrogeology and leased up an area. The Vista Ridge Pipeline is a good example in Post Oak Savannah. Um, the, the Recharge Texas now has a bunch of land that they have leased and they've got a water right that they can, a permit for the Lost Pines District that they can try and sell water to somebody someplace. But they haven't yet. They've had that permit for almost five years and it hasn't been sold yet. I, I can think the only reason is is because I don't know why anybody would buy their water when they can go drill well next door and pump it whatever they want. So you talked about <clears throat> marketing water. You know, and we're also talking about water markets. What do you think the difference is between those two? I mean, if the Edwards is a water market, but we have other places where you can market water, it's not really a water market, right? Well, you can, you can either buy the water, in which mm -hmm. case you're, you pump it and I buy it from you, um, or you can buy the water right. In order to buy the water right, there has to be something that defines that water right. Just like if you're selling a piece of land, yeah. you have to have a meets and bounds description of the land. You're not going to sell a piece of land and just tell somebody, yeah, you get that corner over there without very clearly describing exactly what it is they're buying. Well, the groundwater, that's very difficult to do. The amount of groundwater underground at any given moment changes with recharge and discharge. So uh, you can... Just like with a lot of oil and gas places, they don't buy the oil and gas beneath the property. They buy or lease the right to capture it. Mm -hmm. So kind of the same thing happens right now in Texas where people are going out and, and buying or leasing the right to capture that groundwater. And typically they'll pay the landowner some uh, res residuary fee for the amount of groundwater being produced, just like they do for the amount of oil and gas being produced. The difference is once the oil and gas is gone, it's gone. Yeah. For almost all the aquifers in Texas, I'm not going to say all because there may be some that have a finite, non-rechargeable amount, mm -hmm. uh, they recharge when it rains. Right. And because it recharges when it rains, the water comes back. So it's not like someone's going to pump it and it's going to be gone forever. Now, we have another 1950s-style drought. We're going to see some people's wells go dry. Right. And in some cases, that can be cured by drilling a deeper well or lowering the pump. Yeah. In some cases, especially on recharge zones... That can't be cured. I don't know what those people are going to do. Now, the Ogallala, I, there are a lot of people who think that it does not recharge 
it does recharge, it just recharges very slowly. Right. And so the differences, I mean, the, the geological differences in the various aquifers are, you know, real key in terms of their management. I mean, if you're thinking about a, a, a market, well, you know, one of the things about the Edwards is, you know, the water, you know, moves fairly rapidly through that aquifer. Right. And you can have a permit in one part of the aquifer and need water in another part and essentially just pump that water out from an existing well in the, you know, the part of the aquifer that you're in after you purchased or you leased someone's permit. It's very easy to ask a farmer, someone who owns a water right in Medina County, be a farmer or somebody else, uh, if you stop pumping your water and sell me or lease me that right, and so I can pump it in San Antonio or even further on, uh, it's very easily done because the aquifer accommodates that very, very well. Uh, in the Ogallala, I, again, I have to come onto your land to drill a well if I want to pump the water from beneath your property. Right. Now, they, all, they do have slant wells, and they have horizontal wells, and they've experimented with some of those up in, in the Ogallala area, mainly so they're not disturbing as much of the surface as they would if they were drilling a series of wells. They, they do a slant well that, that gathers a lot of water from underneath a bunch of different properties. Okay. Um, but, you know, for the most part, they have to go, they either have to go directly on your lane and drill down from your property or they have to drill under your property to get to the water. They can't drill a mile away and expect the water to flow that mile over uh, anytime soon. Uh, Korea's Wilcox is a little bit more like the Edwards uh, and less like the Ogallala, uh, but you know, there are there's also different formations there. There's you, know, you got the Carrizo, Wilcox, Sinsboro, yeah. various layers that have different water qualities and different transmissivity and different recharge areas in the in the west and north of the wherever you happen to be. So yeah, it's it's. It's very difficult, and that's exactly why we don't have like a railroad commission statewide agency that's regulating groundwater, because not only do we have very different formations that require very different sets of rules dealing with the hydrogeology, but there's also very different communities over that. Right. You know, a perfect example, uh, 80% of the water pumped in Fort Bend County is pumped by city and industry. Uh, 90% of the water being pumped in Horton County next door, right across the county line, is being pumped for irrigation. Right. Those require different sets of rules. And, uh, you know, especially where you have a situation where the water's already being overpumped, like if you're already causing a subsidence issue or you're already causing springs to go dry, then you've got to already start by, by cutting back. Fortunately, there's not a lot of areas in Texas that have that problem. Uh, Houston, obviously, was a big one. Uh, the Edwards was becoming one. We had you know, the springs had already gone dry in the, in the drought of the 1950s. We had to do what we could to keep that from ever happening again. So those different problems require different, unique solutions, and that's why we have different, and even in some cases, totally statutory, uh, unique enabling acts in order to address those problems and provide those unique solutions. So you know, you mentioned um, the uh, 101. I think groundwater conservation districts and subsidence district. A couple of those are subsidence districts. Um, do you? I mean, I've often wondered about the uh, wisdom of having so many of those be single county districts. Um, 
seems like that, uh, you know, it may be some of them were multi-county districts that they might be able to share resources, have a larger staff or something like that. I mean, what is your thinking on that? Well, first I blame high school football because, you I know. know, I was in that <laughs> meeting. I was, that was one of the first meetings I had when I was at the Rural Authority. Is I, is, and I remember somebody, I'm not going to name who, standing up and saying they can't be in the same districts. They got to have their own single county districts because they don't get along during high school football and all That's that. Right. Uh, so yeah, nice. if you're if you if you routinely your high school routinely plays their high school, you don't want to serve on the groundwater board with it. Mm-hmm. But seriously, um, a you need to make sure that they're on the same awkward, same formation, same issues. But more importantly, you have to have the ability to administer that district, which means there has to be a funding mechanism that's fair and equitable. There has to be a governing body that is elected or appointed fair and equitably and properly represents the various interests that are that are impacted by those regulations. And it, it's easy to do that for a single county district because that single county has an appraiser. They can do a property taxing district. Um, all the property taxes from that district go to that, uh, from that county go to that district if it's a single county district. Most of them are established on the county commissioner, where there's one director elected from each of the four county commissioner precincts and one at large, just like the county commission is. So the election, the elected body and the funding mechanism are very, very natural. When you add one or two or three or four or five other counties to that, you have created a lot of other problems. You've got one county might have a much heavier population, and therefore, if allowed to vote uh, for at-large members would dominate that election. Uh, you might have some that have greater property value because, for example, Matagorda County has the South Texas Nuclear Project, which is a huge taxpayer down there and creates a, ver- a wealth of property tax, even though Horton County right next door has a bigger population and a bigger water demand. If they were in the same district, then Matagorda County would be paying the lion's share of the property taxes to support those districts. Uh, a lot of some districts go with uh, with some fees based on the production or the permitted amount, and again, that that can be a very disparate thing from one county to the next. So that, that county, the counties paying most of the fees or paying most of the taxes, tend to want to have a majority of the board and the the biggest voice on the board, and that's not necessarily what's best for the management of the aquifer. So all of those factors have to be taken into account when you're creating a district. Um, the Blue Bonnet District was eventually was originally designed as a five-county district. Two of the counties didn't vote to confirm the election, so it started out as a three-county district. A little bit later, the fourth county joined in. That fifth county, Washington County, never has. Let me let me point out here to our listeners who are not familiar with how Texas does things: the legislature generally creates these districts, and then the uh, folks in those counties have to hold a confirmation election. And the election essentially decides, yes, we're going to go ahead and the district is going to go ahead and function, or no, it's not. The confirmation election is constitutionally required if that district is going to be supported by a property tax. But with very few cases, most of them have been created requiring a confirmation election just because the legislature thinks that's what's best. Right. Now, the Harris-Gallison subsidence district did not have a confirmation election, and it's not a property tax district, 
so it doesn't require one. It's older too. Uh, it was created in 1975. Yeah. One of the oldest, one of the oldest districts in the state. So and one of the most successful, I have to say. They've done an amazing job down there. And just just so people know, I you know I read someplace that there was, I mean, the subsidence issue was a serious issue, and there were some places where they had you know nine feet, ten feet or so of subsidence because of overpumping the groundwater. The Houston Ship Channel, which is the biggest economic generator for the entire region down there, uh, is 12 feet lower than it was 100 years ago. 12 feet, yeah. Uh, One-third of San Jacinto Park, where we won our independence from Mexico, is now permanently part of Galveston Bay. Uh, They had uh, uh, artist renderings of the San Jacinto Monument being surrounded by water if we didn't do something to stop the subsidence. Uh, They have arrested that subsidence problem throughout all of Galveston County, most of Harris County, and are well on their way to stopping it throughout. Um, There are, as the region grows, it's kind of moving that problem out into adjacent counties and other areas. That led to the creation in 1989 of the Fort Bend subsidence district. That led to creation of the Lone Star district, the Blue Bonnet district, the Southeast Texas district, the uh, Lower Trinity district, which is north of Harris County, north of Montgomery County. So more and more people have recognized it's a problem that they're going to have to deal with and have created the ability to take care of that. They haven't created subsidence districts, but they have created districts to help regulate groundwater withdrawals. And so the main tool for subsidence districts, similar to groundwater conservation districts, kind of, you know, spacing the wells and production limits on the wells? Or almost entirely spacing because, I mean, almost entirely production because spacing doesn't do that much. Okay. Uh, you, if, you, if you concentrated all the pumping in Harris County into one area, that might cause a bowl of subsidence in that area. But for the most part, it's, it, it, the spatial limitations would... would wouldn't really address the issue as much as the total amount of water being pumped. And uh, they have limited the total amount of water being pumped to remarkable levels. In Galveston County, where I live, I can get 10% of my total water demand from groundwater. The other 90% has to come from an alternative water supply. In most of Harris County, those numbers are 80 and 20. 80% surface water or alternative and 20% groundwater. And um, in, in Texas, which is a property rights state, that's pretty remarkable. But we also don't want our property flooding. We also don't want right. our property sinking into Galveston Bay. So that's also a property right that we have to affect. You know, one of the issues that people need to understand is the rule of capture, which isn't a property right, by the way. It's a tort law yes. that says it's an anti-liability law. I can do whatever I want, regardless of how it harms you. And worse yet, you can do whatever you want, regardless of how it harms me. Yeah. Um, That creates the ability to do true harm to your neighbors. And the groundwater conservation districts are there for one reason and one reason only. That is to prevent the harms that would otherwise be allowed by the rule of capture and protect those property rights. And yet somehow a lot of them become the villain in this story, uh, saying that they are uh, harming property rights as opposed to protecting them. Oh, the districts? Groundwater conservation districts are seen as bad guys all over the state. But really all they're trying to do is to make sure that one neighbor is not harming another neighbor. And are you, so would you say that um, a lot of that is from maybe cities, other other entities that need water and they feel like they can't get it from aquifers that are managed by 
a groundwater conservation district because of limitations on the export out of the county? Or Well, the district can't limit exports out of the county. In fact, the districts are required by law to treat exporters exactly the same way as they treat everybody who's inside the district. Interestingly, the rest of that section of the water code, 36.122, lists out all the ways we have to treat them differently. <laughs> yeah. We charge them separate fees. We have to give them an export permit. We have to give that export permit based on certain factors that don't apply to other people. Uh, but other than that, in terms of their actual production limit, we can't put any greater limits on them than we do anybody who's inside the district. At the same time, they're not, they're not entitled to anything extra. A lot of the exporters want to get 30-year permits. Well, yeah. It's really hard to give people 30-year permits when you have a five-year renewal of your planning horizon every every five years. Right, right. Uh, they're thinking gonna, they got to build a pipeline. They can't build a pipeline and not have it be full for 30, 30 years, years, right? Until those bonds are paid off. Yeah. And I understand that that conflict. I understand that, that limitation. But if we ever have a situation where because you're an exporter, you get a 30-year permit, and I'm not, I get a one, three, five-year permit, we're not going to have a district there very long. Right. And now your pipeline is going to be subject to rule of capture, meaning all your neighbors can start pumping as much water. You don't get any. Mm. So... Uh, we have to find a way to work together. We have to find a way to get along with each other. And, uh, you know, setting reasonable production limits that apply to everybody equally is the best way to do that and the best way to protect those private property rights. And where that becomes a problem is where you have, especially utilities, that are already pumping more than that, and they have investment-backed expectations that required, are required constitutionally to be protected then how do you how do you deal with that conflict with gotcha. the historic users and non-historic users and yet everybody getting their fair share? Gotcha. So I was uh, looking at the new water plan a little bit today, which tells you um, that I didn't have a very exciting day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was, you know, thank you about water nerd. Yeah, yeah, I admit it. Um, and I was, you know, thinking about well, you know, here we are with the amount of groundwater that we we are relying on now and we're projecting the decline over time and you know having to make up that water from some other source or by reuse or conservation or, or something like that mm-hmm. and so you know what i mean so what do you what do you think the the future is of our groundwater management in the state when we with the exception of the Edwards Aquifer, um, we you know see these declines over time, off into the future. Um, I mean, is at some point are we going to uh, you know change the way that we're managing them so that we can get back to I guess trying to balance recharge and you know discharge from aquifers, or what do you think is going to happen? Well, one of the things that needs to be done, in my opinion, is we need to find out what the perpetual yield is of each of these aquifers. And then, yes, we need to try and manage to match that that yield. Now, you know, aquifers are kind of strange animals. Uh, the, the, you, you can pump X amount and you'll, you'll hit an, an equilibrium and show what the yield is at that equilibrium. You might be able to do 2X and find a new equilibrium. Yeah. Uh, so, but you want to find one where everybody still has access to the water. Now, get the Ogallala, which is fairly flat, fairly uniform. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's 
going at about the same level across the entire aquifer, except like in the Hempel area where it's rather rather hilly and mountainous. Um, in the Carrizo Wilcox, you have people up on the recharge zone, and you have people who are down dip. And the people on the recharge zone are fine as long as there's plenty of recharge coming in to keep that part of the aquifer full, even if they've drawn down the levels in the, the confined zone quite a bit. Uh, but if we ever end up with another, and we will, end up with another 1950s-style drought, and that water is not coming in to recharge that area, you, you may see entire portions of counties with no water. And there's no place deeper for them to go get it because they're on the recharge zone. Right. Um, th- that's going to be catastrophic. You know, not being able to get the permit you want is tragic, but not having any water is catastrophic. Right. So we need to see what we can do to try and make sure that doesn't happen. So it's a combination of finding reasonable limits on, on what people can pump normally and having appropriate drought plans to address what happens during a drought period. And honestly, it's kind of the same thing we do with our, our surface water systems. Mm-hmm. They're all dependent upon rainfall. They're all dependent upon either recharge coming into the aquifer or the rainfall coming through the watershed, keeping those lakes flowing. And if we don't address that properly through our management, we're going to end up with some real problems. You know, this is, I know this is probably not your, your area of expertise, but, you know, when I'm... I, I don't mind. I'll have an opinion anyway. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I, I love you, Ed, too. Um, you know, I keep thinking, well, you know, in part, we're probably going to have to uh, shift the way we're um, managing agriculture. In some ways, I mean, you know, maybe trying to tailor um, what uh, crops we grow a little bit better to um, the rainfall in certain regions of the state or the country and or going to more kind of, you know, no-till agriculture or something like that. Um, Because I, you know, you know, ag is still what, 55, 60 percent of the the uh, water, water use in the state and 80% of the groundwater use annually. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the limitations we've been talking about on groundwater management and, you know, putting in additional markets start to make me think that, well, maybe the answer is really going to come less from water management than and more from, you know, trying to, to change our the incentives for you know, the type of agriculture we have in, in certain places or how we uh, go about, um, uh, you know, conducting uh, agriculture. Well, interesting that a true water market would help address that problem by allowing farmers to find more efficient ways to use the water they've got so they have more water to right. sell to somebody else. Like the Edwards. Like they have. But like we can't really, but we're probably not going to be able to do that, right? Oh, that's right. I don't think we're going to be able to do that again. Uh, a, a correlative rights system where the amount of groundwater you pump correlates directly to the amount of land that you own is one means to achieve that, where we've said this is the most you can pump from this land. So you can either use it to grow rice or corn or whatever, or and or you can sell it. Yeah, and it doesn't really matter which one we do. But you'd have to go in and replace what we've got in all these districts and what everybody's used to. And, and and ironically, the Day case, which declared that everybody had a vested property right, and the Bragg case that said the amount of that right depends on 
your planned use for that water and the investment back to expectations prior to regulation and the negative impact after regulation, that gives a whole lot more power to those with historic use yeah. than those with correlative rights. You know, utilities don't have a lot of correlative rights. They, they own little postage stamp sized pieces of land where they have a well right. and, and, a, and a, you know, maybe a treatment plant and that's it. Um, lots of districts will grant them permits based not on the land they own, but on their service area. But as other people drill wells within that service area, that, that area begins to shrink. Yeah. So the utilities need to go out and buy more water rights from people to keep them from drilling wells so that they can continue to pump and sell that water. Uh, trying, to put the, trying to implement a correlative right system after the fact, where the utilities clearly have the ability to sue the district for a takings. That, that's a tough road to hug. Right. That's a very tough situation. Because you mentioned earlier in our conversation that there were some some districts that had you know, what was more or less kind of correlative rights. We have a few districts that have, I think there's one district that might have what's pretty close to a pure correlative right system. Everybody got, but that's also the that's, district that covers the King Ranch. Okay, yeah. And and so... It's all it's one landowner. It's all, well, yeah. no, well, originally it was all one landowner. And oh, all, yes, broken up, but still right. huge ranches, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, it was pretty easy to put that regulation on themselves. Uh, most of them had a modified correlative rights system. And that modified correlative rights recognizes utilities and their demand and industry and their demand. Um, but, yeah, that's that, that's a way to try and get to an amount. Historic use is one way. Correlative rights is another way. Quite honestly, because of the Day case, the Bright case, uh, we are going to have to come up with some sort of hybrid system and my prediction is you're going to see the utilities in the industry out buying up water rights from people, meaning I own your water estate and you can only pump enough for domestic and livestock use or something along those lines. And I get the rest in order to ensure that they have a continued supply and into the future. But, but they're not going to do that until they see the threat of the possibility their permit's going to get reduced because of lack of supply or because of the new uses coming on the system. So this is something that, I mean, when you look back at the drought or record, you know, that, um, uh, you know, resulted in the state building a lot more surface water reservoirs in part. Mm -hmm. Also, people started drilling a lot of wells because it, it was after Second World War, it was cheaper to do that. Yeah, back when and, conserving water meant building dams. Right. Conserving, yeah, yeah. Conserving meant, yeah, we're not going to let it escape to the Gulf and be wasted. Yep. I mean, it's really what it meant. Yep. And, and uh, I actually heard one of your board members say that once. I was in, I didn't see, and I was very nice about it. I didn't do anything. But I was like, <laughs> I was at the time for people who are listening, you know, I worked for the Rim Authority, who was down stream of where the two major springs, come on, Sam Marcus Springs, discharge out of the Edwards. And and one of your board members, I, I have it written down someplace, said something about, we don't want any more water going out of those springs because it's going to be wasted. It's going to just end up in the Gulf or something like that. I was no, oh, that's sad. Less so. than two years ago, I had an attorney in one district that was adopting rules to try and protect spring flow make the argument that Chapter 36 of the Water Code and the definition of waste meant allowing any water to come out of a spring was per se waste. Yeah, boy. <laughs> boy, I mean, and 
just, I mean, here's this is another thing that most people are not going to be aware of. But you know, there's no there's no definition really of waste. I mean, I mean, not a real practical definition. I mean, because no one ever gets tagged with wasting, right? It, it, it's pretty strong right up until the last sentence, which says. Uh, any other use that the land's beneficial to the landowner. <laughs> right. So, you know. But uh, we moats, do have, they can we have do, a moat, right? Yeah, we, they, you, can, you had a guy, and I'm not going to name him, you know, growing rice out in West Texas to make a point. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't waste. Yeah. Or raising pecan trees on the edge of the Chihuahuan Desert. <sighs> yeah. You know, we have all those situations. Right. Um, uh, I think the districts are going to be best off if they let people decide what they want to do on their land and they just concentrate on the hydrology of the aquifer and how much water is available. And if you want to try and you know, grow rice with the amount of water you've got, have at it. Yeah. You might end up with a lousy crop, but that's going to be your loss, not ours. Right. Well, I wonder so, what will happen because, you know, like you say, um, there's going to be another drought of record or, I mean, there'll be something worse. There'll be right? a bigger drought. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after that, people will be forced to do something else, right? The, the tree ring studies we've done that go back hundreds of years. Yes, have, my study, yep, thank you. Yeah. Have, have found much worse droughts than the 1950s. Yeah, there's one There's one from 1697 to 1717 using the tree rings here in Central Texas where, you know, it looks like, damn, it didn't rain for 20 years mm-hmm. or something. But, um, you know, California and the western U.S., you know, they're – they're experiencing, I, I don't know, I guess this is maybe their new data record. Um, you know, they're calling it, of course, a mega drought. And they are um, looking at, you know, a really bad year. And we're looking at a bad year, too. Mm-hmm. We've got exceptional drought in, in a bunch of areas. I was in one of them the weekend before last. And, um, you know, that, uh, that drought that we're talking about might be upon us. You never know. It'll be interesting to see how the legislature responds to that. At, at one point, following the 1950s drought, they adopted the Wagstaff Act, which applied yeah. to surface water, which created a hierarchy of needs. Right. And irrigation wasn't very high on that list. I know. They were five or uh, something, three or five but or four. They also didn't depend on surface water for irrigation. So right. I think it was pretty easy to put them that far down on the list. You know, if, if I owned the entire state of Texas... One of the last things I would do is dewater those areas that have depend on groundwater for irrigation and move it all to the cities because I want to have irrigated agriculture. I want them to continue as a, as a um, but on the other hand, it's a, it's a property right. And right. the landowners free to do whatever they want with their property. Right. Well, but you know, then you look at, I mean, agriculture in Texas is less than 3% of GDP and it's using 60% of the water. And so you look at California, you know, 80% of the water in California goes for agriculture and it produces 2.8% of their GDP. Um, just, I just go to back up a little bit. You mentioned the Wagstaff Act. And so people will know what that means. I mean, essentially says that when you get in a really bad drought, you know, cities and power plants, you know, can say, hey, you can't cut us off. And you got to cut off everybody else. And they got rid of that, and, but in part because the cities were using that and power plants were kind of using that as an excuse not to go out and make sure they had the water supplies they needed for droughts. They were like, ah, oh, we're just going to, these other guys are going to get cut off. 
And so we're, we're good. And, uh, of course I got rid of that and, and, you know, you know, the cities and power plants are, you know, take it much more seriously now than they used to. But, but, um, you know, that was a, that was an act that I think was, uh, made sense at the time. And people thought, well, you know, good intentions, you know, we want to be able to have power and, you know, large masses of people in cities to have water, but, uh, the behavior that resulted in it, you know, turned out to like not be helpful, you know, uh, just kind of, knowing that uh, when you really get into a really bad drought, uh, you're not going to be cut off. And you can kind of be lazy in preparing for that drought uh, because of that. Newton's fifth law, every legislative action results in a nonsensical reaction. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Get kind of the same problem with administrative rules, too. You adopt a rule with very good intentions, and you find out that the response to the rule is the exact opposite of what you're hoping for. I'll give you a perfect example. We're approaching our first really bad drought. The aquifer levels are dropping at the EAA, and we're telling people you got to conserve. We don't want to go into mandatory restrictions. You know, if, if we don't get some rain, it looks like we're going to be there by next week. I'm driving into work. I'm listening to talk radio, and the radio DJ says, folks, it looks like we're going to have mandatory restrictions starting next week, so water your lawns this weekend. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. It's like, uh, I, just, I just about drove off the road. I right. Mean, that's right. why I pull my hair out. It's frustrating. Well, we've gone, we've gone over an hour mm-hmm. and had a great chat about water, which I've really enjoyed. Um, tell us what you're up to next, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, well, I'm, I'm representing districts all across the state. I've got several uh, contested matters that are going on right now. A couple of them are going to be uh, big, important cases, and a couple of them are over 14 acre feet of water. Oh, uh, so it, it's... You know, it just depends on which area you're in as to how important it is and how much water is at stake and how much money people are willing to spend on the contest. Again, I'd much rather find a, a settled solution than having to go through these contests. Right. And we're facing another legislative session, of course, uh, the TWCA Groundwater Committee, which I'm up here to meet with tomorrow. Texas Water Conservation Association. Association. I have to get those in. Go ahead. Uh, they... Uh, um, Part of what they're going to be doing with this groundwater community is they're going to have a special task force on the question of waste. And should it be okay for a city to transport fresh groundwater via a river to another location? Uh, or is that per se waste? Uh, so that's going to be part of what's discussed. I thought that was actually going to get litigated at some point, but that litigation went away. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, lawsuits recently, uh, and we have more lawsuits coming. Uh, said in when I filed a brief in in the bar shop case in 1993 saying this isn't a taking because there's no vested property right involved yeah which turned out to be wrong yeah <laughs> I commented until 2012 when they finally adopted it I said if if let's if the Supreme Court gets this answer wrong I'm busy until retirement <laughs> I'm, I'm as busy as I can be well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you in closing here how people can get a hold of you, but maybe you don't want them to. Well, I only represent the Groundwater Conservation District side. Yep. And yeah, all, they of, know them, who you all are. of them know me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I see them on a regular basis, uh, uh, and I represent in one capacity or another about a third of them. So uh, that's about all the business I can handle right now. I'm actually having to go out and farm out some of it and hire other attorneys to help me get through the, the workload these days. But um, I'm, 
I, I guess the only message I would want to give to anybody is if, if you're having a problem with a district and uh, we need to find a way to talk, talk our way through it and find a compromise solution to it, the last thing you want is having a court make that decision. Right. And which is why the rule of capture keep kept us out of court for over 100 years. And now the day case is kind of forces back into court mm -hmm. to get a lot of these questions answered. Um, but instead of having those big fights, let's have compromise solutions. Let's find uh, middle ground. Absolutely. You, you're, you're preaching the choir here. Greg, thanks for joining me on Talk Plus Water. I really have enjoyed this. I'm, I'm very, very happy to have done it and enjoy the, the conversation. Well, we've known each other for a long time, but I'll, this is probably the longest we've ever been able to sit down and talk to each other. So my guest today uh, was Greg Ellis, a renowned Texas groundwater attorney. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and say that if you enjoyed this episode of Talk With Water, please let us know by giving it a like. And that's pretty much it. My name's Todd Butler. Let's talk water again soon. <laughs>